Hello, and welcome back to Empires of the Future. Uh, this is Denton here with Jackson. Jackson, how you doing today? Doing great. Good. Glad to hear it. Glad to hear it. We're excited to, to be together. I was uh, thinking as we were coming in today, it's been a, a eventful warning for me. Um, I've got quite a tale to tell from this morning. You want to hear it? Absolutely. I figured I you do. would. I figured you would. So I, I uh, this morning took my uh, kiddos off where they need to go. Um, Thursday morning, we're recording this on a Thursday morning, so I have to get up a little bit extra early uh, to take uh, Elijah to school because Kaylee's mom is so great and gracious to come and meet me there at Elijah's school to get uh, the other two from me. So uh, Thursdays is kind of a convenient day in that I just have one stop, but I also have to get up a little bit early in order to meet up with her before doing drop-off with Elijah. Um, And so it always makes for a little bit of a hectic morning. And so I didn't really remember everything as I left the house. Uh, so I had to run back home after I dropped the kiddos off because I'm efficient like that and uh, get home and I'm fiddling around with some stuff. I had to do some work on my motorcycle and there was a uh, pit bull I noticed walking around outside the house. There's a house near us that breeds and sometimes one of their pits gets out. And she was out roaming around. When I got home, I saw her and tried to, like, see, okay, is she friendly? Is she going to come up to me? Wouldn't come up to me. Very timid, um, which makes me a little nervous. Sometimes timid also means, I don't know, not quite as trustworthy. But yep. um, So the dog didn't come to me, so I was like, well, okay, do your own thing. Just stay away. Well, while I'm home, I'm, I'm around the side of my house doing some work uh, on my motorcycle. And I hear... Just dogs going nuts. <laughs> multiple dogs. And I know what has happened. Uh, my neighbor, we have a, a couple, of the young family that lives next to us. She likes to get out and take her dogs for a walk along with the stroller. She'll push their, their one-year-old. And I knew immediately I heard those dogs going. I mean, it sounded like an all-out brawl. Yeah. Uh, so I come running around the corner. And sure enough, there's that pit bull. And here's this this young woman desperately trying to hold back her two dogs and hold on to the stroller while this pit bull was approaching. And so I, I took off running just like yelling, Hey, hey, you know, getting in between the dog and everything else. And, um, it was crazy. I mean, she was so thankful that I was there and it was a good thing I was, you know, who knows what would have happened, but you know, I came in feeling all good, you know, like the hero getting in between the, the dog and, and them. And then I tried to get the stroller and like push back away from, from where the dog was and felt like a complete idiot then. Cause I couldn't figure out how to unlock the wheel to push the stroller <laughs> out of the street. Uh, like, the modern the, world with all its one. challenges. Yeah. Like she's <laughs> holding back the dog. I'm trying to help her get the, the stroller up. It was just what a mess, but uh, it was crazy. And ended up just, I just turned around and said, you deal with the stroller. I'll get the dog out yes, here and just yes. kind of, the dog didn't want any part of it really. And I, when I ran towards it, it took off and yeah. made its way back home. But, crazy story uh but it's just one of those instances where like oh yeah i felt felt very heroic until i couldn't unlock the stroller wheels to <laughs> move the thing out of the street but uh um, listen that parenting technology is really weird because there's often yeah. like two levels of sort of uh guard on all of these things and you think you can see how this works there's no more powerless feeling than like trying to uh <laughs> move a stroller you know yeah. something like this is designed to hold children but all these safety features that you're looking for some sort of weird little spot where you're going to pull a lever and yes. it's like i want to throw this thing through the window yeah this thing <laughs> is literally on wheels and i'm about to just pick it up and carry it with the kid in it over to the to the yard that was crazy that is the case though there's so many 
Like it makes you feel like such an idiot. Like, mm-hmm. Here, you yep. you come over and take care of the stroller. I can't do it. I'll get this kid out of here. But anyway, yeah. everyone was okay. The dog made it back to its house and its owner yeah. actually got it outside and um, put it away. Anyway, crazy, exciting uh, moment this morning outside our house. Yeah. I've got a, uh, this is a tech-related story, a t- totally different kind of technology. Um, our speakers in all of our halls went out. Uh, which is a big problem because nobody uh, in the hallways can hear. You have uh, speakers in the hallways at your house? Uh, at the church, <laughs> uh, at the church building. Um, and so that was a problem. And I never know about these things till after a service because I'm in the service. Uh, it's, it's, it's very odd. Uh, so being a music minister, you kind of can't leave because if at any point the pastor uh, ends his message, uh, you're supposed to be there to do the invitation. So it's really weird because you're like on the ready. Um, and I, I pretty much uh, after the first, you know, five, 10 minutes can't go outside at all and so I hear about these things often afterwards any problems that happened even in the sound booth or you know I don't know about it till later I just you know try to put it together and um, they'd been flickering and long story short after a few days of trying things and investigating things I found out where uh, the fuses were in the amplifier that drives all those speakers and took those out and found out what a broken uh, blown glass fuse looks like oh, like the and little tube tube ones yep little yeah. little short tube uh, as uh, Jason Southwell said it l- sort of looks like a small version of that ooze container that yeah. is on uh, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movies uh, and shows and uh and so then I had to go hunting for one, which is fun because these things look like sort of automotive fuses, but they're, you'll never find one if you're looking where automotive fuses are. Yeah. Uh, and so ended up at the place that typically works on our uh, amplifiers and different things when they go bad. Got one for $1, came back, put it in, and we're back in business. So I consider that a big win for this week yeah. because uh, we were almost to the point of having to call somebody professional in just because it's beyond you know, my capability to figure out what's going on. Yeah, that is a big win because those amplifiers are expensive. Yes, yes, yeah. without a doubt. And they're big and heavy, and even getting it out of the rack is uh, just a bear. Getting behind there, these little, uh, you know, wing connectors that you have to unscrew and then yeah. try to remember uh, how yeah. they were in there. Now, those are better than the um, the copper connectors that you stick through because those you can fight with. And when you're in an enclosed space, it's one of those deals where, like, oh, man, top five for most frustrating situations ever when you like stick a copper connector through try to wind it and then it just sort of like pulls itself out like nah i don't want to i don't want to go through there i don't want to do that no thank you but yeah anyway so we both had uh some exciting moments uh. yeah mine much more positive experience i would not want your experience at all well everything ended up positive because no one got uh hurt and and everything so you ever been bitten by a dog uh i have yeah I got bit on the face by a dog one time. <laughs> yeah, it was minimal though. It was minimal. I was kind of, I was, uh, I don't know, probably 13 years old, and I've always loved dogs. Over at a friend's house, their dogs seemed mm-hmm. really nice and friendly. Uh, it was a cocker spaniel, which I have since heard and learned that sometimes they can be a little bit mm-hmm. temperamental. And uh, I was playing with the dog and went and just kind of grabbed it from behind or whatever, and it turned around and yeah, just like two teeth, just. Yeah. One on top, one on bottom. So it's yeah. very minimal, just one puncture, cheeks started bleeding. Uh, yeah. I got bit on a pizza delivery one time oh, no. by like a terrier. 
and I think it does change your entire kind of like uh, feeling about dogs. Yeah. Like if you get bit because it's a it's a very frightening experience when a you know you're perceived as a threat or when a dog's just aggressive towards yeah. you. Because until that you've had that happen, you kind of like to look at dogs and like, oh, these are nice furry little things that just sort of let me pet their belly. And then you know when you come on the other end. Um, it's, it's a particularly kind of disturbing feeling to have a, an animal, yeah. you know, bite at you. Yeah. Um, and, um, uh, so yeah, I was kind of a parent's worst nightmare growing up. Cause in my mind, dogs didn't bite because <laughs> I'd, I'd never been bit by one. I love dogs. Yeah. So I would see any random dog on the street, in the neighborhood, wherever, uh, collar, no collar size. None of that mattered to me. Yeah. I was just like, best friend, come here, give me a hug. <laughs> and I'm just wanting to grab the dog and how oh, my mom I can remember all the time she'd be yelling at me, get away from that dog. (laughs) Never did it though. Never did. Not a care in the world. No, it's a dog. They're great. So parents worse than me. Joke's on you, mom. Dogs are awesome. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. That's what I thought. We got a big article today um, Mm -hmm. called We Are Repaganizing by Louise Perry. This is um, the, from the October edition, which is still yet to come for us here in the middle of September 2023, um, of First Things. Uh, mm-hmm. We found it at firstthings.com. And uh, First Things is a journal uh, seeking to kind of connect uh, religion and public life. And, and a journal I, I check out quite often. A lot of good articles there. The first one I've ever seen there by Louise Perry, which uh, a name, if, if people aren't familiar with, she recently released a book called The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. She is not a believer. She comes, uh, she calls herself a person of the left. She's British, um, but who, uh, one of my professors at the seminary used to talk about um, the church needs to have a path to receive refugees of the sexual revolution, people who realize that the sexual revolution has not delivered on anything that it promised. Um, and I would definitely call Louise Perry someone who has experienced life uh, from the standpoint of the sexual revolution and is, is now a prophet uh, <laughs> speaking mm. against it because it, it is now to the point that uh, a lot of the rhetoric around the sexual revolution has very little content. It basically just says, oh, no, freedom is an unabashed good. Whatever anybody wants to do, yeah, let them do it. And with no question of, like, but to what end? And where does this land people who, who, uh, in these, who fall into this language of freedom, and soak it in, and is it delivering on these promises of uh, endless pleasure? And and her perspective is no. Um, and in fact, uh, she has worked with um, people who are uh, rape survivors, mm-hmm. uh, women. She's worked in a women's shelter in uh, the UK, uh, trying to just deal with women who are, I mean, everything from coming out of prostitution to battery. And and, and she has seen the dark side of it. Mm-hmm. And so she writes, uh, having experienced that. Did you know much about her before reading this article? No, nothing. Yeah. And to be perfectly honest, I still know nothing about her other than what this article exposes. Um, so I, I know that she admits she's not a believer. She calls mm-hmm. herself an agnostic. Um, and yet writes on the, the sort of repaganizing that's taking place here in um, in Western culture, yep. kind of, sort of. So really good article. Um, and, and we would commend it to you, even though she's not a believer. Um, but for her perspectives that she writes on, especially with regards to abortion, which is largely what the um, largely what the article is about, not exclusively, but 
kind of the emphasis. Um, the opening poem that she cites, uh, which it was a poem by a, a Scottish poet named Holly McNish. Um, you care if I read that for us real right quick? Right ahead. That was my first mark. It was, it, it's a, a very short poem, uh, but somewhat, I don't know. I don't really know the word. She calls it a brutal poem. I think that's the, yeah. the right word for it. But this is the poem. Quote, he said they found a brothel on the dig he did last night. I asked him how they know. He sighed, a pit of baby bones. A pit of newborn baby's bones is how to spot a brothel. Whew. And and then she immediately moves to, oh, this is more than just a poem. It's true. And, and she mm-hmm. talks about uh, how she met the writer and lawyer Helen Dale at a lunch uh, in London and that this is what you find uh, in, yeah. in antiquity. And when you're doing archaeological research, one of the things that you find uh, is, she said, first you find the erotic statuary uh, statues that are very erotic mm-hmm. in various ways, poses and these sorts of things. And then you dig a bit more and you find the male infant skeletons. And she says the reason that you find male infant skeletons is those are of no use. If, if uh, female babies are born. They are raised to be prostitutes themselves. They were in, in these societies, and uh, the males uh, were killed. Mm-hmm. And, and this is the first reason that uh, I wanted us to talk about this article. Is a lot of people are very unaware of um, sort of the social side of uh, the situation for women and children in uh, Western civilization in ancient Greece and ancient Rome. Um, and I mean, obviously, uh, we're all unaware of a whole lot of history. Even if you are a historian, you, you focus on a certain time period. But it is very important for us to know, and, and this is something that I had run into and been shocked by before, that, that it was a common practice in ancient Rome to expose young children. And what is meant by expose is um, you put them out on the street and they won't survive long because they have no means by which to survive. Mm -hmm. And what you are saying is I don't want this child. If anyone else wants it for any purpose, take it. Otherwise just don't worry about its cries. It will be dead soon. Mm -hmm. Whether that night animals came and took it or whatever happened. Yeah. Extremely sad. Extremely sad. Um, and while she doesn't get into all of the, the connections to be made, it is worth noting that, that you know, she's starting this way about this brothel in a conversation on the, the repaganizing that we're sort of seeing because uh, this sort of, of brothel, this sort of practice was, was an integral part of pagan worship. Uh, that's why you had in many, in many pagan um, cultures and societies, you had all kinds of cult prostitution and um, at these various temples to these gods, it was common to have these sorts of of, uh, of brothels and things like that as a part of their of their worship to yeah. these pagan gods, um, and that sort of begins her her sort of uh, framework that she's working with to say, are we in in a sense are going back to this sort of of repaganizing, um, right? And and as a response to. Uh, depending on how familiar you are with uh, anthropology or, you know, these sorts of things. Like, for instance, if you read the whole the Old Testament, you will run into the phrase temple prostitutes, which I, I think to us um, uh, 
depending on where you come from, religion may seem strange to you, but religion provides the deepest answers to the questions of uh, human desire, uh, human hope, human dreams. And we who have believed ourselves to be secular, um, in, in a lot of ways, Louise Perry is, is trying to clarify some confusion that she had, which was, I thought of myself as a simple secular person. And what she has come to realize is uh, people are not secular by nature, that uh, if we do not move towards the better elements that we see in humanity, we will devolve into the worse elements, and those are pagan. Those are mm -hmm. uh, base impulses uh, such that what you find in these pagan religions is uh, the tying together of sort of uh, notions of, uh, of beauty uh, with simple base sexuality and that is uh, her claim and her contention is that is what we are falling into, even as we think of ourselves, as most people in the West think of themselves as secular. And how does that happen is, is another part of the uh, story that she's trying to dispel because she's seeing uh, as over in Britain, they're, they're in a more uh, secular place. She is seeing uh, people who call themselves uh, transgender women who are males being put into prisons, say in, in Scotland or in other parts of the UK, and then they rape another woman and the state acts shocked. Mm -hmm. And that a lot of people have bought this idea of progress uh, without any definition to what the final vision is. If you have a final vision, you can determine whether or not you're getting there, but progress at is presented is nothing but bare freedom, but that's not a definition. That's just uh, this vague idea of let people do whatever they want. Yeah. And if you can't define progress, then her great concern is you can't define regress. Right. And you can't measure regress. And she's seeing a lot of things now that she goes, this is, this is regress for yeah. women, for children, for the weak. Um, but... The West is, in a lot of ways, running headlong into it. And so that's a lot of what this article is about. Yeah. And um, that is a greater theme in her work. So if that's something that is interesting to anyone who hears this, um, she writes more about that. Yeah. She goes on to do the very thing that, that uh, you're not supposed to do. And that is she makes the comparison. She draws the connection between the sort of infanticide that was common back in these pagan cultures and these pagan practices and religions um, to the logic of abortion today, mm -hmm. um, which I'm, I'm thankful for because it takes a certain kind of boldness to do that. But she, she talks about, you know, back then, um, and she, she quotes, uh, what is it, a certain anthropologist, David Lancey, um, when he, he's kind of saying that it was not a sort of common thing throughout all of human history that infanticide has been understood to be bad. Actually, in a whole lot of cultures— for time immemorial, it has been understood as a, a fine thing, a, mm -hmm. to a certain degree, a sort of necessary practice in order to keep things operating as they should. And he, here's some of the quotes uh, from that anthropologist, Dave Lancey. He says, Among the ancient Greeks and Romans, sickly, unattractive, and unwanted infants were exposed, as Jackson was talking about earlier, or otherwise eliminated. The Chinese and Hindus of India have 
since time immemorial, destroyed daughters at birth to open way for a new pregnancy and a more desirable male offspring. The Japanese likened infanticide to thinning the rice plants in their patties. Among foragers, such as the Inuit or the Javaro, unwanted babies were left to nature to claim. And, and sh- this is where I think the article really is powerful in that she makes the point. Uh, she says, modern technologies such as ultrasound allow us to identify if undesirable characteristics, for instance, male sex, or excuse me, for instance, female sex or Down syndrome, earlier than our ancestors could. But, she says, the most common reasons given by women seeking abortions today, poverty, fetal disability, and simple unwantedness, were the same reasons given by mothers and fathers who killed their newborn infants at other times and places. She literally says the connection between infanticide then and abortion now is undeniable, and the reasons for it is the same. In other words, we are operating in the same way that they are, but our society today has found ways to sort of try and make it more palatable, to Mm -hmm. sort of try and hide the the grotesque nature of it more than societies did back then, which... I think is absolutely true. One of the things she she mentioned she didn't never really think about is what happens to the remains of aborted fetuses. Um, now, yeah, yeah, today, today, right? Um, you look around, you don't see aborted fetus, uh, so which is an unborn baby. You don't see a bunch of um, unborn, preborn bl- baby pits today, like you would have seen at those brothels then, yep. because today uh, we have found ways to sort of sanitize it to to take this quote-unquote medical waste which is baby parts right and incinerate it to where it never has to be seen it it goes from the womb into a a, a trash bag and then gets burned up so no one ever has to see it so so that archaeologists archaeologists will not one day discover um infant pits in our day and age mm-hmm. um, i think there will be other things that will be uncovered and will be seen and will linger to point to the the grotesque reality that we are currently facing today with abortion but um but that's why and this is why i think whenever people see a certain tactic which i am not opposed to uh by uh pro-life activists uh, is to go on to whether it be college campuses or public spaces or outside abortion clinics and show pictures of uh, the remains of aborted babies and it's grotesque, and people hate seeing it, and yeah. people complain about it, and all these kinds of things. Why is that? Because essentially, what you are doing when you show them those pictures is you are opening up that pit. Right. You are opening up that aborted infant pit of remains, and no one wants to see that today. Right, and, but and it's it's still there. And we should ask ourselves if uh, if it is progress that the same sorts of skeletons exist it's just that uh we more efficiently dispose of them yeah um and and so that that is a strong claim and a statement here at the beginning and and Mm -hmm. to anyone who wonders okay well what happened in rome that changed this society and so she says, uh, quote, it was the arrival of Christianity that disrupted the Romans' favored methods of keeping reproduction in check. With laws against infanticide and then abortion imposed by Christian emperors from the late 4th century, 
Christians have always been unusually vehement in their disapproval of the killing of infants, whether born or unborn. And their legal regime prevailed until the mid-20th century, when we experienced a religious shift that will probably be understood by future historians as a second reformation. Christians are no longer in charge, and their prohibition of abortion, unlike their prohibition of infanticide, or at least so far, is regarded by most pro-choice secularists as archaic, illogical, and misogynist. Yeah, and, and there, there, I think there has to be a little bit of a distinction that I've, I always get kind of sort of bothered by any sort of claim to, well, Rome was Christianized or, or uh, became a Christian nation. Well, there is a distinction between being influenced by Christian morality and indeed those who maybe are Christians from the top imposing a sort of biblical Christian morality and a nation being Christianized. And I say that to say we here in the United States sometimes talk about, you know, we are a Christian nation or used to be a Christian nation or things like that. We need to be real clear what we mean when we say that. What I would argue if someone were to ask me is the United States or was it ever a Christian nation? I would say, well, it was largely a nation influenced by um, and directed by Christian values and biblical values, but there is really no such thing as a Christian nation in that everyone in the nation is a Christian or is saved uh, or is redeemed, right? But there are we're using the term here as I think I would understand her to use it as a nation largely run by, influenced by um, Christian morals. Right, and, and another way to say this is when people um, talk about laws, uh, everyone legislates morality. Yeah. The question is whose morality? Uh, and one of the things that at the heart of this article is this question of, well, who's worth protecting? Mm-hmm. And how do we know that? And we have assumed, and especially um, there is a str- has been a strange secularism that says, well, obviously we protect X, Y, and Z, uh, whether that is women, children born, uh, you know, after gestation, uh, what, whatever your definition is. Um, listen, um, I've read some others uh, who will point to uh, like a Frederick Nietzsche recently and, and, and said, listen, Nietzsche was uh, unique among the philosophers when he said, listen, if, if we don't believe Christian morality, then everything is on the table as far as what do we do with ourselves? Mm-hmm. It's a will to power. We, we should do whatever we feel like doing and brush off anyone who says there should be consequences for it because if there is no such thing as objective morality then anything goes. Anything is permissible. And what Louise Perry is saying is that we are seeing more things become permissible, but we we better know what we're biting off before we bite it off because um, the line will not be stable at, uh, say, children born after eight or nine months gestation. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the line, in fact, will not be stable at children. The line will not be stable, and she's already seen the, the argument is, look, um, how are women uh, doing right now in terms of uh, gaining what they want in, in general? Are, are they attaining to uh, marriage and children if that's what they want? Uh, listen, the, the sexual revolution is not delivering that. In fact, what it's delivering is um, pornography addiction, the teaching of uh, false views of what sex ought to look like, and ending up with uh, a lot of 
disillusioned men and a lot of frustrated women who don't know how to have relationships with each other. That's what we're developing right now, Mm -hmm. Uh, 50, 60, 70 years after a sexual revolution that said, do whatever you want with your body. It'll make you happy. Yeah. It's not the case. Right. It's absolutely not. Um, But, you know, she does go on to talk about the fact that, and this is where (laughs) I I hear her making these arguments and connection between uh, pagan infanticide of the past and abortion of today. And like, man, I'm like, you're on track. You're getting it. You're getting it. But then she points out in this article kind of at this point that um, she is not opposed or she is not for making abortion illegal. Uh, She even says that when she's entirely honest with herself, there is a limited number of circumstances in which she would want an abortion herself, and and therefore she wants it to be legal. Uh, But she sort of falls under the the old Clinton-era mantra, which she she laments in the article that that's sort of been done away with and that current pro-choicers are are sort of celebrating abortion um, in the way that they are, insist that all abortions are good abortions. She sort of laments the, the... the loss of the idea of abortion being safe, legal, and rare that yeah. was sort of known by Bill Clinton and I think by his wife a little bit as well. Um, she says about that slogan, though, she says uh, they do away with it because uh, on the ground that it promotes stigma, she says, right? Which, first and foremost, uh, stigma is going to be there no matter what. I, lo- I hate this idea. I think it's so silly, this idea that we can remove stigma from something like abortion. Uh, it's kind of a futile attempt. But... Um, she says the slogan resonated because it roughly expressed the view of the model American voter that abortion is sometimes a necessary but always sad. I read that and I'm like, that is one of the dumbest and most illogical sort of points of view that there is. I'm sort of with the pro-choicers of today that either abortion is bad or it's not. It's either good or it's bad. Yep. There, it cannot fall in some sort of middle ground where, yeah, it's a, it's always a bad thing, but sometimes it's necessary and therefore a good thing. No, abortion is either a bad thing or it's a good thing because of what it's dealing with, and because of the fact that it's dealing with the life in the womb right. and the status of that person. And that's why anytime I hear someone say something like, "Well, you know." I, I'm personally opposed to it. I would never get an abortion myself, but I, I think it should be legal. I think people should have the rights. I'm like, well, why are you personally opposed? Why is that? I mean, more often than not, it's going to be because they have some sort of, of opinion or, or view that it's a life. And I'm like, well, if you really think it's a life, right. shouldn't you fight to protect that life? Shouldn't right. you want that life to be saved? So the whole, honestly, the whole safe, legal, and rare mantra of the past it's foolish. Why would you want it to be rare unless it's bad? Unless it's a not only bad, but a moral evil. Because otherwise, like with any other procedure, say you have another kind of in their in their mind, another kind of growth or or tumor. Isn't it a good thing to have that removed? Right. And it, it would always be a good. And thing. we know that uh, a baby is not a tumor, and as a result, right. But you can directly account for this. That uh, you know. Uh, Louise Perry says in uh, that previous paragraph, she says, I am agnostic right. uh, and I'm drawn to Christianity from an emotional and an intellectual standpoint. Um, but until you swallow whole moral objectivism that that God is the author of life and that human life is a gift, uh, that 
that that child uh, did not ask to be born, uh, well then, it's impossible to come to the conclusion that that life is sacred unless you can tie that life to something sacred, something beyond this world, which is what we have in God. And this is, this is so foundational because if you're going to approach this from a utilitarian standpoint, what's useful? Yeah. Well, look, babies are not useful, and nor can they tell you what they want. Um, and, and from a standpoint of if, if you want to look at things and go, oh, well, I, if someone can, can speak to me, if I can define their worth by some sort of ability, uh, well, that's going to be fun- fundamentally different than being able to define their worth by something that is transcendent. Um, and it's going to uh, give you all kinds of questions about if I'm defining their worth by their ability, then I have all of a sudden all kinds of questions about uh, people with less abilities. Right. Uh, and, and some sort of sliding scale of worth is going to end you up in incredibly dangerous territory. And that's where we go next. Because if you don't, uh, if you don't want to define people as being made in the image of God, uh, well then, uh, from a simple evolutionary standpoint, what makes them different from other animals? Mm-hmm. Uh, you're going to land pretty quickly. Oh, uh, mental capacity. Well, there's a problem because uh, infants have very little mental capacity. Mm-hmm. Right. They can cry. They can say that they want to eat. Uh, th- right. Their abilities are very limited. And this is where, you know, and, and I, like I said, not to be too too harsh on, on uh, Louise Perry, but... I do think at this point is where she kind of undercuts her own argument because she's sort of arguing for an objective reality that that clearly infanticide is wrong, yeah. right? And she's basically saying we would all agree she's she's insane that's wrong, but then she undercuts herself by basically saying, well, sometimes it's okay to kill the baby in the womb. Well, you have just introduced a, a, a sort of relativism or subjectivism mm-hmm. um, that that undercuts your case entirely. Like you have lost the ground to stand on to say that infanticide is wrong when you say that sometimes abortion is okay and right. And so like, you know, a lot of what she still says in this article is still good and we're going to make our way through it. But at this point, I do want to say, I think it's worth, worth noting, like she has sort of, is sort of trying at this point to play a middle ground that doesn't exist logically. Mm-hmm. You cannot say that sometimes the baby in the womb has value and sometimes it doesn't. It either does or doesn't. It, yeah. Otherwise, it all becomes relative, and you have no grounds to stand on to point. You you have sacrificed the moral high ground now to point at the infanticide proponent and say, "How dare you? You're so wrong." Yeah, you've granted it to him. Yeah, you know. So, it just needs to be said for anyone listening that that's my opinion to you as well. If you think that you can somehow say that abortion is okay sometimes but not okay other times, then you have lost the ground to say that infanticide is ever wrong. Right. You've you've granted it. So. Um, so she talks a little bit about uh, the history of law in terms of infanticide, how uh, even in societies that had more of a Christian influence, there has been less will to convict uh, women uh, who had abortions or who killed their infants, uh, including uh, in 1922, infanticide was reclassified and re- renamed with uh, the passage of the Infanticide Act. Uh, and this was done because juries refused to convict even before 1920. And you ask, well, well why was that? Um, 
again, because of this issue you were talking about earlier, that there has always been this mix of Christian influence ever since Christianity was introduced into the Western world and pagan influence. Mm-hmm. What is that infant? If that infant is a life, well, then we need to have a murder trial uh, from a Christian viewpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, if not, is it disposable? And this has been, as our instincts uh, lead us places on that, um, that's been the challenge. Um, but then uh, this Helen Dale, um, her answer to why infanticide convictions uh, have been astonishingly rare in history, uh, juries, she says, are pagan. And Louise Perry says, increasingly, we all are. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's the future, but that's a future, she says, is this what we want? Do we want a future that is the return of paganism? Because we're marching there whether we realize it right. or not. And that is really the main point of this article and, and the point that she will continue to uh, attempt to convince her readers of. Uh, we are not moving towards some sort of uh, technological utopia. We are using technology to make base moral decisions, uh, but those are pagan moral decisions uh, with all of the accompanying problems and she says if you think you know what problems this is going to create and especially if you think you can define all this as progress take a really hard look at what is actually happening I I had no idea and I have not read much T.S. Eliot at all but this next section about T.S. Eliot um is instructive. In 1939, she says T.S. Eliot gave a series of lectures at the University of Cambridge in which he described a fork in the road. Uh, Western civilization might continue along the Christian path, she says. He predicted or might adopt modern paganism. Uh, Eliot, a Christian convert, hoped for the former, but he feared that we were already hell-bent on the latter. And and, uh, having read a significant amount of C.S. Lewis, he writes on this as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, Works like The Weight of Glory are specifically written to say... Um, look, either either your neighbor is a creature that uh, may live forever in the kingdom of God, or your neighbor is a creature that if you uh, ran into them in their fallen state in a uh, hundred years as they might live in a much darker place, it would be worse than the worst horror movie you've ever seen. And if, if your neighbor is that important as the Bible teaches that they are, uh, ought you not to love them mm-hmm. and to consider them the most valuable thing you'll run into today? Uh, and that is, a, that is a powerful question and one that T.S. Eliot here was pointing to as well. Um, and so if we fully abandon Christianity, uh, what's coming next? Yeah, yeah, and, and really, you know, she makes the point in the article— um, she talks about a guy named Stephen Smith, uh, and a book that he wrote uh, back in 2018, "Pagans and Christians in the in Pagans and Christians in the City," in which he makes the argument, and I think she's sort of, but she's promoting it, right? She would agree with it. Uh, he says that paganism never really went away, yeah. um, which makes its return all the easier. And I would agree with that. You know, even when we talk in terms of a pagan society or Christian mm-hmm. society. What we're really talking about is in terms of morality, which morality is being more perpetuated and more inclined towards and more promoted. And there are the, a pagan 
kind of morality has never gone away. Mm-hmm. It's always been present. It's always in in the most Christianized as any part of the world has ever been. Paganism has still been there and yeah. has still sort of infiltrated our, our way of thinking and, and our morality, whether mm-hmm. we like it or recognize it or not. It yeah. has been there. Um, in fact, I would argue, like when we talk about what it means to be pagan or Christian culture, uh, we really don't mean like whether or not everyone is Christians or everyone is pagans, but what morality rules, mm-hmm. what sort of um, ideas of what's right and wrong, what sort of ethical system is is predominant. Right, and, and, and so to provide a clear definition, which is very helpful here, what is paganism? Uh, they, they say in here that... Uh, a focus on the imminent, and if that's a word, they kind of go, well, that's very strange. It is a focus on what is physically present to you to try to fulfill your uh, deepest inner longings as opposed to accepting any sort of transcendent, Mm -hmm. uh, anything abstract, anything that you can't see. And so, for instance, um, you become, if if you you have these inner longings, both for uh, pleasure and for intimacy, you demand that casual sex provide you with sustenance for all that. What if it doesn't? And what we have seen is a world that goes, well, I expect it to, and I'm going to be continually frustrated if it doesn't. Mm-hmm. When uh, the Christian perspective is, look at that. That intimacy is meant, that intimacy desire that you have is meant to be filled in other places. Right. Even as Christians, we believe that, yes, in part, uh, God gives us marriage as an answer to physical desire, to sexual desire, and also to some of that intimate desire. But no one hearing this who is married should put an expectation on your spouse to fulfill all of your needs for intimacy and relationship. Uh, Only God can fulfill some of those, and even some of those will only be fulfilled in the kingdom. Loneliness is a part of what we deal with here. But one of the strangest things about our modern age, and you can see this, if you open your eyes to this, it will change the way you look at everything that we're doing, that we are uh, drinking in all of our strange ideas about relationships, uh, and we are becoming increasingly unfulfilled because we do not view this in any way as the scripture views this in any way as God views this, we are saying, no, all of my desires must be filled in, in this present physical situation when your spirit <laughs> will not have that happen. Mm-hmm. And it is as if your spirit is attempting to drink uh, from a well that it has no means by which to drink. And I mean, Augustine, this is one of the deepest insights of Augustine of Hippo are. You have made us for yourself, God, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. And this is ancient Christian wisdom derived from the scriptures, found by the best minds we've ever had, but our world is attempting to forget it and being increasingly frustrated as as our world refuses to hear answers other than the imminent, other than what is immediately present. And you're seeing that. That's what you're seeing in so many ways. You, we are given now... Uh, all these means by which to quote unquote connect with other people and finding ourselves disconnected. Mm -hmm. And that is uh, ironic, but ironically sad. Yeah. Yeah. She gets into then like the idea that what has sort of happened uh, is that Christianity has incorporated sort of imminent or, or pagan elements over time. 
Um, she she says this is this is her words, not mine. I, I kind of want to hear your thoughts on it. I have some thoughts, but um, she says the ancient sacralization of sites such as wells and stones persisted, uh, but with heathen deities replaced by Christian hermits or martyrs. So she's talking about how sort of Christianity is blending paganism in with with Christianity. Says the uh, the pantheon of deities was replaced by an ever growing host of saints. Christianity flourished when it permitted followers to incorporate religious practices that were found not only in Greek and Roman religion, but in other religions, practices that seem, in fact, to be uh, instinctive in human beings, particularly the veneration of nature of nature and of ancestors. Um, she sort of is making the argument that, well, we see examples of how paganism didn't die, but largely has been incorporated or blended with Christianity, and she names a few ways. Um, what are your thoughts about these ways that she's named? She talks about uh, a the uh, uh, the sacralization of sites uh, and places and things, but replacing it with uh, names of hermits or martyrs. Uh, pagan festivals being entwined with the Christian calendar. Um, the pantheon of deities replaced with an ever-growing host of saints. Um, what are your thoughts? Do you think she's right that that is sort of a blending of Christianity and paganism? Do you think those are good things, bad things? What are your thoughts? So she, it would be interesting to know her um, experience and connection with any, with what form of Christianity, uh, because what she's pointing to rings the most bells about Catholicism, right? Roman um, Catholicism, which yeah. certainly, if you look into it, certainly Roman Catholicism has a history of replacing pagan deities with um, saints, whether similar or dissimilar, um, all the way up to, I mean, saints all the way from thinkers that we would appreciate, like St. Augustine, which I mentioned a minute ago, to uh, the veneration of Mary. Uh, this is most prominent, you can see, in Latin America, which has um, a history of being pagan, uh, Latin America and South America as well, being pagan, having a strong Catholic influence, and then seeing what we call syncretism, which is the mixing mm -hmm. yes. of paganism. That sounds like what she's talking about, with, syncretism. Yes, yeah. yes, certainly. And I that's why I wonder how much experience she has had with um, Christianity of even, you know, the Anglican sort, right. which is what, you know, supposedly, this is what's so strange for us living where we live in the United States. Somewhere like England, which has as an official religion the Church of England, right. which is uh, much more friendly with Catholicism than most Protestant uh, denominations, um, but still, I, we are all captive to what we have experienced, and so to look at this from a historical perspective would be one thing, to look at it and having experienced is another, because for you and I who are uh, Protestants, of a and proud of an evangelical sort what we did not like about uh the catholicism of uh the middle ages the catholicism that then merged with um sort of colonialism uh when you when you see the expansion of the western world uh, places like say spain who was 
Catholic and then began to colonize the world is, is that mixing is something that we would be opposed to as well. But that is something that the reformers, the Protestant reformers were against mm-hmm. and sought to say, what, what is it that Jesus is actually teaching? Uh, what is the heart of the Christian faith? Uh, and it, it, the conclusions that we we come to after them is, well, union with Christ, uh, justification by faith, mm-hmm. uh, the maturity in Christ, leaving behind sinful ways towards following God's ways, um, which, and here's a challenge about all of this, which I, I, can, I can land on saying I do not fault her for, what missionaries find is, it is an impulse of fallen humans— mm-hmm when confronted with Christianity, to go, how much of me can I keep? (laughs) And me and my traditions and my culture, can I keep and still go along with this? Um, And there is a period, I I would think in most every Christian walk, where syncretism will be what you do. But then you run into, just like the disciples, ran into a Jesus who said, uh, whoever wants to keep his life will lose it, but whoever loses life for my sake will find it, that uh, that you have to die to yourself, yeah. uh, that he will renew you, but you have to die to all of your old ways. And so this looks very different depending on where you land. I'm yeah. sure if uh, missionaries who are in China or Japan will have to, to have battles and struggles with ancestor worship because that is prominent in those cultures. Meanwhile, that would not be a challenge for anybody who is in Europe or the United States. Uh, that, that is not our weakness. Right. Uh, but meanwhile, uh, other problems pop up. And so, yeah, I think that's certainly uh, been a part of what Christianity has been, which is it's syncretism. It's, it's, it's a, it is— Which uh, is a bad thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and it's something that we, we want to end. But even she herself says— uh, Look, Christianity is challenging when it's proposed yeah. to people. Uh, the reason that they don't do it well is, uh, well, yeah, uh, give up on your desires. You will not find it easy. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, and I, I agree. And I think we don't have to go um, all the way down the rabbit hole of this conversation about syncretism. But, you know, some of them I read her say, and I'm like, oh, yeah, let's see. that's that's Roman Catholic. I don't have to worry about that. That's easy, yeah. you know, um, like the the increasing host of saints, um, certainly the, the veneration of ancestors and of nature and things like that. I was like, yeah, 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 that's Roman Catholic stuff. They got that wrong. That's bad. But she does say pagan festivals being entwined with the Christian calendar. And while we might not know it, um, certainly things like Christmas that we celebrate. Yeah. The tree is not from the Bible. (laughs) Yep. That's right. That's right. Uh, it starts to hit a little closer to home when we think, okay, all right. What, what is syncretism? What does it mean? Um, are, am I okay with these sort of pagan originated practices and festivals being incorporated into, in many cases, not only my life in society or in culture or, or from day-to-day basis, but also, and I think sometimes it can become dangerous, incorporated into the church. Yeah, sure. Um, it, makes, it becomes a much tougher conversation at that point to say, okay, what, where are we compromising? Where is paganism still... Uh, where are we allowing it and things yeah. like that to infiltrate our worship and things like that? And where are we not? It's a right. hard conversation and one that we don't have time for, I don't suppose. But 
Right. And, and I think that uh, we can just point to a couple of things to, to think through uh, for wherever you are in the church and what you are expecting of your church. So, for instance, here we are in September. Uh, that means next month is October and uh, Halloween will come up and various churches do or do not various things at that time. Um, as Christians, we are not trying to preside over anyone else's conscience in terms of general cultural uh, attitudes because while let's say Halloween uh, has certain connotations that can be talked about uh, something like Valentine's Day mm-hmm. uh, a your church does not need to do anything yeah. to celebrate Valentine's Day yeah. but B also you uh, don't have to condemn it mm-hmm. um, it just it is not a religious practice. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you have all of that uh, that you're dealing with here. Yeah. But the corner that we turn here, I think, is such a powerful corner. And that is uh, the consideration of Christianity and weakness. Yeah. Um, she says, quote, the supremely strange thing about Christianity in anthropological terms is that it takes a topsy-turvy attitude toward weakness and strength, and it does. Uh, that's my emphasis. <laughs> she yes, says, yeah. continue. Quote, to put it crudely, most cultures look at the powerful and the wealthy and assume that they must be doing something right to have attained such might. The poor are poor because of some failing of their own, whether in this life or the last. The smallness and feebleness of women and children is a sign that they must be commanded by men. The suffering of slaves is not an argument against slavery, but an argument against allowing oneself to be enslaved, mm-hmm. end quote. And so what I would say to anyone who can become familiar with, say, ancient Greek and especially ancient Roman cultures, what you will see is a bare celebration of strength and a bare fear and uh, hatred with all of the biblical connotations, like, I never want to be weak. Yeah, There is nothing positive about weakness. That is Roman culture. Right. And to anyone who thinks they know it, you can't know it when you live in a culture that has now been suffused at least with the memory of Christianity, because Christianity has a fundamentally different set of things to say about weakness. Mm-hmm. And with all of the ramifications that come after that, uh, if, if weakness has some value and virtue, well then... Maybe it's more complicated than I never want to be weak. And, and I can know that if anyone is in a weak place, um, sorry for them. Yeah. The idea of a person having value in that time and that, mm-hmm. that day and age was dependent on how much power that person had. You have value because you have power. You have value because of your strength. Strength is value right. uh, in that sort of culture. And then enter into the conversation Christianity, uh, which, as, as she says, takes a perverse attitude uh, towards status, and that perversity is at the heart of the theology, uh, whereas God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. That is directly from the scriptures. It's a, it's, she says it's a baffling and alarming claim uh, to anyone from a society untouched by the strangeness of the Jesus movement. This idea that, that weakness has now entered into the scene as that which is going to overthrow the strong, that which is going to shame the strong. Um, and she says this is why for a long time even, I thought this was interesting to note. I'd never really thought about this or heard this before, but um, the depiction of Christ right. on the cross 
was not something that was accepted early on. Mm-hmm. Um, not only was it not accepted, it was like, no, we don't want to depict our Savior, our God, our Messiah in that way, the, sure. portraying the weakness of him suffering mm-hmm. and dying. Mm-hmm. And even when they did start to, you did start to see paintings and, and depictions of Christ on the cross. Initially, they were not accurate. They were, uh, well, you know. As, a as, very peaceful painting. guy on, yeah, you know, with e- stakes e- run through his Exactly, guy who seems very legs. at peace, very comfortable situation, and usually jacked, usually looking kind of like a, a Roman god, right? Right, right, right. Um, not like he would have actually looked. It wasn't until much later that we began to see um, really the the suffering and weakness mm-hmm. found in Christ's humanity as right. depicted on the cross. Um, it wasn't until much later that that began to be the case because it was such a shock yeah. to the system of, of these pagan cultures, this concept of weakness yeah. Yeah, and, being and, turned and, into strength. Yeah. And it, to, to us who uh, are more accustomed to sort of a glorified view of the cross, a, a, a glorified in a base sense, I mean it, um, we should realize that uh, a cross put on a wall in this Roman culture would be similar to us having uh, a, a electric chair mm-hmm. and, and some sort of image uh, or symbol of an electric chair put up on our wall. It, it yeah. is a it was known in Roman society as a symbol of death, of mm-hmm. torturous death. Anyone and shame. Keep in yes. Yeah. Th- th- keep in mind this was done to the worst of the worst, so that and as these as crucifix crucifixions happened uh, at the gates of cities so that you had to go by them. And when children would have seen this as they inevitably would, they would have said, well, what did that man do mommy? And, and you would answer things that we never do. Mm-hmm. This is how, this is how laws were enforced before an age of, uh, large police forces and cameras and, and you, you instill fear into people and it, it worked in a lot of ways. But meanwhile, a man in this very, very, severe, brutal, but consistent and practiced system uh, was killed in this humiliating way, just as many, many, many others uh, had been and many, many others after him were, um, but he didn't stay dead. And uh, among among his people uh, rose this statement that uh, that I won't turn from him because you killed him, but he came back. And I'm told that if uh, you you can kill me in the same way, I'll come back too. This very very curious happening in this brutal culture uh, that after Jesus, many other Christians, uh, including what what we know according to tradition of uh, the Apostle Peter uh, and and the Apostle Paul and others who refused, even when threatened with death, uh, from turning, and and it changed the world. And and so we see that. And this is outlined. Uh, this this affects every culture that Christianity has touched since then. That's outlined in a book uh, by Tom Holland called Dominion, which I am reading right now. And he has so many powerful lessons to take away from this. And, and one of the things he says is, quote, the manner of their Savior's death was to the Roman mind so obscene and so humiliating as to be beneath mention. It was not until the fifth century that Christ began to be depicted in the moment of his death, and then never in a show of agony, which, uh, like you talked about, more uh, like a Roman God uh, mm-hmm. he was comfortable and he was muscular rather than a small Jewish man yeah. more dark skin more olive skin and these sorts of things um, and he, he says uh, further quote built into the fabric of the religion was a love for the weak 
that could not help but slowly, falteringly, work against the strong. Christians were not unique in owning slaves, for instance, but they were unique in eventually banning slavery, something that no other civilization had ever done before. And modern secular feminists, familiar only with the caricature of Puritanism presented in Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale, wholly underestimate the emancipatory effect that Christianity had on women, end quote. Yeah, get wrecked, feminists. That's kind of what she says there. Uh, no, that's not really what she says. But she is saying that when uh, when when feminists of today uh, see the the sort of like she said caricature of of what Puritanism was or or is really um, as depicted in The Handmaid's Tale, or when we hear you know even like um, the Scarlet Letter, you know, yeah, you sure. read that story, things like that. We people have in their mind this picture of Puritanism uh, that has nothing good about it. Uh, and is to be completely done away with. But she is basically telling them, you are underestimating um, the effect that Christianity, which you're largely casting out now at this point, uh, had towards a a good for women. Mm -hmm. Because it's Christianity that first perpetuated this idea that that even the weak, like women uh, in society, have value and are therefore to be cared for, honored, protected. That's a value system presented by Christianity and none other. Right. Uh, wherever you think that came from, it didn't come from there. It came from the scriptures. It came from Christianity. Right. Think about the question. If you are in ancient Rome and a man of any means has sexual access to anyone who is of lower status than him, which he did. No one disputes this. It would be impossible to dispute this. It is a basic element of Roman culture that you have access uh, to any slaves that you own uh, because those slaves have no status. And, and, uh, and he talks about in here that having the view of the world that we have, uh, we assume things like, oh, well, surely they wouldn't take advantage of slave children. Or, no, look, uh, where are all these babies coming from that are unwanted? From unwanted male sexual advances, which were common. Mm-hmm. Okay, then. A, a, a Roman man could take advantage of anyone of lower status. Why? Because without someone to say, hey, I'm against that, I, I will fight you for this situation, or I will sue you, or, or any of these things, as Roman laws are the basis of our legal system. Mm-hmm. Um, how does that change? How do women gain... Uh, a marriage where monogamy is expected. And keep in mind, monogamy was expected of that woman. Mm-hmm. Right. It was just not expected of the man. Yeah. How does that situation change? It changes as Christianity infiltrates Roman right. culture, and then as Roman culture gives way to Western culture as a whole. That is how it changed, and how we find ourselves many hundreds of years later in the situation that we find ourselves in now. And, and, uh, and she mentions uh, Kyle Harper, a man named Kyle Harper, who describes this as the first sexual revolution mm-hmm. uh, where all of a sudden uh, men had rules too. Yeah. In a situation where men had all the power, how was this accomplished? It was accomplished by Christianity. That's right. Yeah, it's the only way. You know, when, when, when she says Paul's prohibition against porneia, that's that Greek term, uh, for illicit sexual activity. Um, It is the first time that an ethical system was presented in which male access to the female body was not unquestioned or unquestionable. 
And so she's basically saying like feminism, uh, if it's as it seeks to tear down these things, to do away with these things that are that are Christian ideas, are doing away with the very things that gave root to feminist ideas and ideology or a purpose of, of feminism. She says that uh, feminism is not opposed to Christianity. Really, is it is its descendant. Right. Uh, I would give one caveat to that statement that uh, I would say this is true of the early forms of feminism, that they are descendant from, I wouldn't say Christianity, but Christian ideas, Christian morality. Yeah, if you define feminism as a concern for yes. the well-being of women— Yes. Uh, and, and even one one way to say, well, where do you want to go with that? Well, I, I want to say, if you're concerned for the well-being of women and the well-being of men, so am I. Yeah. Uh, that That is a, a Christian concern. Yeah. We can think of people of different categories and then add that category to the other categories and look for some greater good that we can work towards and we can live in as a society. And so, for instance, we've been talking a lot about uh, vague uh, notions of politics uh, how I view, okay, what do you do in America then? Well, look, you ask, what is the good of my society all at all levels? What is the good of my uh, neighborhood? What is the good of my city? Uh, what is the good of my region? What is the good of my state? What is the good of my country? And then you vote for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You ask, how do I love my neighbor? And then you vote that way. Yes, knowing that other people may look at the situation and vote differently from you, but that's how democracy works. Sure. Um, so that that's how you should handle that. And that's uh, feminism in this light is a reasonable emphasis. And I can say to you that uh, you know we have uh, college students that, that, that I know who are taking classes at different colleges in, in feminism. I've had conversations with uh, one young lady about her class. And, and it seems she's even sending me her notes uh, every week just so, to see. I'm interested to see uh, in all these different classes, how, how do you integrate this, which is a big weakness of our system, yeah. uh, atomized knowledge. Um, and there is not much effort integration. It's basically this question of um, how do we give women what they want? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, uh, I, don't, I don't know if, um, and I'm not trying to be glib, but look, uh, most women are, tied into relationships with man, men of some kind. <laughs> yep. And if you don't have any interesting questions about how do those relationships sort themselves out, then it's just short-sighted. It's not going to get you very far. Uh, we can talk about women, um, but that's been, the feminist conversation has been pretty short-sighted as well, and that's not getting us to a good place, especially now when you can see uh, transgender women in uh, yeah. m- women's sports Sure. Yeah. Uh, dominating those as well yeah. as the prison situation, with, which we've already mentioned, and many others. This has not been thought through in any way, shape, or form. In fact, what has happened is uh, assumptions have been made, and then we are seeing the ramifications of those assumptions, and they're not good. Yeah. I, I, in my opinion, I think feminism, you say it's not very, um, there's not much foresight or it's not very well thought out. I would say both thinking of the future and thinking back to, to feminist roots, because the point that she's kind of getting at here is that in a sense, feminism is like a, a snake eating its own tail, where as women, to the point where, where feminism has come now, um, if feminists today are seeking to uh, allow for, contend for, demand uh, unrestricted access to abortion to be able to kill the baby in the womb, the most vulnerable among us, the weakest, the least able to defend themselves or help themselves, uh, they are tearing away at the very roots of what 
gave feminism any place to, to room or to stand on. And yeah. that is the idea that the weak have value mm-hmm. uh, regardless of their weak, that strength is not all there is. Uh, and they're sort of, in a sense, like I said, a, a snake eating its own tail where they've come full circle. And now one of the very ideas of, of the weak because of, of their intrinsic value, because of their sacredness, as it were, having value and are to be defended, which was the case at this time um, where, fe- where women were seen as weak, largely yeah. useless, largely, largely for the pleasure of the strong, yep. and they were there as commodities. Um, the ideas that perpetuated that are now the very ideas that they are sort of eating and, and destroying along yeah. their way. It's sort of a, a self-destroying cycle. Right, and in and, and, and an answer to how this happened, uh, Tom Holland says, uh, quote, how common in antiquity are the fundamental tenets of humanism, that humans, no matter their sex, their place of origin, their class, are all of equal value, and that those who walk in darkness must be brought into light. Not common at all, I would say. Indeed, I would go so far as to say that their fusion was pretty much a one-off. And then she, Louise Perry says, in other words, secular humanism is just Christianity with nothing upstairs. And this is particularly interesting to me because if you had lived through the 90s and my, my first uh, kind of experiences in ministry in, in, in the early 2000s about what, do you, what are we supposed to think of this culture is uh, people like Christian Smith, who is a sociologist and a, uh, a, one who has studied sort of what we are thinking morally is that everybody's becoming a secular humanist. Okay, that project has seemed to have carried on, but then uh, secular humanism is not what we thought it was in terms of, oh, people will carry on with these uh, secular ideas. No, no, no. Uh, secularism uh, isn't adequate because we have desires that are way beyond sort of, oh, think, do you know anyone who just goes, wow, we have plenty of food, water, and shelter. Therefore, I'm happy. <laughs> no. <laughs> it doesn't work that no. way. And that is sort of the premise of secular humanism, that you ought to be able to tell yourself, my basic needs are met. Therefore, things are going pretty well. One of the strange dilemmas of our time is our basic needs are met and people are dramatically unhappy. Mm -hmm. Our young people are saying, I don't have a reason to live. And that's confusing to a lot of people. But until you look at it and you go, that's because you have made us for yourself, God, and our hearts are restless until they find the rest in thee. We have deeper desires than just food, water, and shelter. Right. So much deeper that while we go to these grocery stores filled with food, that if you could show one ancient person one of our grocery stores, they would literally be shocked. Mm-hmm. They would say, do you know kings don't have this sort of situation? Mm-hmm. Right. And we do. Yeah. Not good enough. And it's not good enough for us. No. Because we are made for more than that. And that is, that is the question. That is the question that we need to be posing to everyone we run into. What were you really made for? Why are we so dissatisfied? Supposedly, all this technology should have made us happy by now. Mm-hmm. And to anybody who thinks, well, these Apple glasses that they're advertising now, that'll be it. That'll make <laughs> us happy. No, no. None of the things that are coming next are really going to make us happy either. But this is the game that we play. We, we, we are... We are excited about the next technology and then shocked that it doesn't really do much for us. That's right. It's, it's 
another C.S. Lewis quote from Christianity where he says, uh, if we find that there's nothing in this world Mm -hmm. that can satisfy us, then it only makes sense to conclude that we were made for another world, Uh, that we can only find our satisfaction in, in the Lord, not in anything here in this earth. And that gets back to the idea of, of paganism and pagan gods all being imminent, meaning Mm -hmm. a part of this world, sort of, uh, sort of from this world, um, elements of this world. And then, the, the Christian idea of God as a transcendent deity uh, becomes something, it, it is seen and understood as something different and the only means by which we can be satisfied because nothing in this world can satisfy. Yeah. Uh, whether it be a ancient pagan Roman God or whether it be even ourselves, which yeah. oftentimes is what we worship today. Yeah. And that's largely what, what humanism ends up being. Because the idea that humanism is Christianity but, without, but with nothing upstairs mm-hmm. It kind of makes sense, but also I think the reality is humanism is Christianity, but with us upstairs, with us as the things, the one worshipped, the one with the authority, the one with the power. Right, and that's what you hear out of a lot of convinced secular humanists. Well, you determine what has value for you. Well, you know you're making that up. That's not good enough. Yeah. yeah You'll know in your worst moments, wow, this isn't turning out great for me at all, but I, I decided, you know, whatever you decide, that if I prove myself through making this much money or being with this many women or having this kind of pleasure or having a car like this or a house like this, it doesn't do it for you. Right. Right. And so she says that uh, when pro-life and pro-choice advocates fight about the nitty-gritty of abortion policy, she says what they're really fighting about is whether our society ought to remain Christian. Right. Um, She's getting at sort of the heart of her, where where her title is sort of, fleshed out a little bit more, you begin to see the point she's making and that she is saying, yes, it ought to remain Christian or at least sort of Christian uh, rather than reverting to paganism. She looks back at what paganism has uh, in ancient Rome and these kinds of cultures and says, yeah, I don't want that. That yeah. is not good for me. That is not good for uh, for women, for the weak, for anyone. Yeah. And therefore, I don't want that. Therefore, it should remain Christian. An interesting perspective, as we've already said, from someone who is admittedly not a Christian. Right. Um, she is a, a self-proclaimed agnostic. Um, and yet she sees the, the value, indeed, how important it is that our culture remain a quote-unquote Christian culture that is... Uh, a culture rooted in Christian morality and Christian ideas. Because I would argue, and I, I kind of disagree with her, but we, we, we talked about this already some, um, the fact that our society ought to remain Christian, we need to be very clear what we mean by that. It doesn't mean that we are a society of Christians. As long sure. as people are connected to this society as it is, they're, they're Christian yeah. because they're in a Christian society. No, it's, it's not the same way. It, that might be the case in, you know, Hindu or, or Muslim cultures where if you're a part of the culture, then you are Muslim or you are Hindu or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, with Christianity, there does need to be the distinction between uh, what it means to be a follower of Christ, to be a part of the, the redeemed, a part of uh, the church. And indeed, in, in my definition, to be a Christian is to be that, to be justified before God yeah. and to be a part of or committed to Christian morality or a culture that's committed to Christian morality. Yeah. So I would just say that I, I agree with her that uh, we are talking about the nitty gritty. Um, when we're talking about the nitty gritty of abortion policy, it is whether or not this society ought to remain uh, a Christian moral society or morally Christian society, yeah. uh, but not that somehow well, because- we are being saved as a society by being committed to these sort of Christian ideas. Because what we've learned uh, – 
we we Christians do not consider uh, Rome a success just because Constantine was the first emperor to say, you know, maybe I will be some sort of Christian, though he never yeah. submitted to anyone else. Yeah. Um, we do not consider the Roman Empire a model of uh, Christian Christianity or uh, successful Christianity in this world, uh, nor do we consider England a model just because they have a state church. In fact, what we see out of most of Europe, which, by the way, has, has state churches, Christian right. state churches in the Germany, it's a Lutheran church. And is Christianity flourishing in Germany? No. no. In fact, Christianity is not flourishing in any society that has an official state religion associated with Christianity. Um, what we expect is uh, what, what Augustine wrote, that there, there is a city of God, which we long for, and we live currently in the city of man. And that there is no such thing as a Christian government because you can't convert a government. Mm-hmm. The Holy Spirit works to convert people. And so we live in the city of man right now. And we have churches by, by which we care for each other and by which we have community and by which we take care of each other and then we take care of our neighbors. That is what is expected of us because we looked forward. We do actually anticipate a powerful king who is to come. And one day Jesus will show himself in power Right now, he shows himself in weakness, and so we as the church do the same. Uh, we, we admit our weaknesses. We, we recognize that he will work through our weaknesses uh, and our vulnerabilities. And this Jesus who we follow really did die in weakness but was raised in strength. And we expect the same. I mean, this is what has been seen throughout, and, and, and look, today Christians will be killed. And they will die in weakness. But as has been recognized throughout church history that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, that Christians can stand against emperors. Uh, someone like Xi Jinping, who is powerful and on the rise, there are Christians who will die under his thumb today, but they will rise again. And that strength will be proven in that day. But for now, it looks like weakness. That's just where we live. That's the tension of where we live right now. And so I think we can speed through. There's a whole section here about uh, how there are those who are honest today. Peter Singer is one who says, yeah. uh, look, we can kill people who are weak. Yeah. We can get them, plead with them to admit that they are weak, say they have a terminal illness, and let's, let's don't you want to go ahead and die? And um, she points to this. Uh, we are opposed to Peter Singer and those uh, who who, like him, are honest about what paganism offers, which is, uh, look, if, if we find you useless, wouldn't it be good for you to go ahead and take your own life? Mm-hmm. We have people who will help you kill yourself. Uh, that is happening. The leading edge of that, the leading edge of de-Christianization, uh, which uh, she points to, she says, the legal status of abortion is at the center of the contemporary culture war because it, it represents the bleeding edge of de-Christianization. In Canada, the, the bleeding edge of de-Christianization is around anyone who is weak, whether older and infirm, or younger, and, and, and there is discussion about infanticide. Look, if certain kind of babies with certain kinds of uh, illness, don't you think it'd be better for them if, if they were dead? Mm-hmm. No, we don't believe that. Right. And in fact, um, we believe that people with Down syndrome have a special value, that they have something to teach us, even in their weakness. Yeah. And that is a Christian belief. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I don't want to gloss over too quickly uh, just Peter Singer. 
it's at least at least worth saying. So this this guy Peter Singer, if you've never heard of him, I don't know how many of our listeners have heard of him. He is, as she notes, uh, one of the most influential modern philosophers. This is no this guy is not a small deal. He's a big right. deal in in philosophy and modern thought today. And he is for infanticide. Mm-hmm. He thinks infanticide should be legal. That's not hyperbole. I'm not exaggerating. He himself says he was uh, doing an interview with a um, former uh, legal scholar activist uh, named um, Harriet McBride and Harriet McBride Johnson, excuse me. And by the way, Harriet McBride Johnson is was disabled. She was disabled due to a neuromuscular disease. And um, she said, uh, he insists he doesn't want to kill me. She, she begins as she uh, is writing about this interview that she had with Peter Singer. But he simply thinks it would have been better, all things considered, to have given my parents the option of killing the baby I once was and to let other parents kill similar babies as they come along and thereby avoid the suffering that comes with lives like mine and satisfy the reasonable preferences of parents for a different kind of child. He's talking about babies that have been born, that parents should have the right and should be allowed legally to kill them. Mm-hmm. So we see Peter Singer as one of the leading voices for yeah. pagan ideas and for paganism, whether he admits that or not. Right. That's exactly what he's promoting now uh, is this sort of paganism. And then it, it infiltrates into what's called made medical assistance in dying, this concept that is available in Canada where you can go and, and apply to be um, to commit suicide in a hospital and have the doctors and, and nurses there assist you in doing that yeah. um, if your situation is deemed to meet the criteria. The problem is, as we know, these criteria are always moving. The goalpost is always on the move. Initially, it was those people who, who's, for them, death is imminent. It's unavoidable. We can see it coming. Then it became people whose life is just really, really hard and difficult and painful uh, and to where it's gotten to the point now of even young people who are just experiencing a great amount of psychological distress are now being being granted uh, this medical assistance in dying, this form of suicide. Right. It's tragic. It's tragic. Yes, and see, it should concern anyone yeah. listening in an age where we can uh, assign um, harm and and just say to someone, oh, are you in uh, such pain that you don't want to live. Yes, emotionally, I'm in horrible pain that I, I don't want to live. Oh, well, then obviously we should help you to end your life. That that can happen so quickly. The slippery slope is it's no longer a slippery slope argument. We're there now yeah. to where you can define these terms however you want. And if then, as we're seeing in Canada, Canada is running the experiment right now. Yeah. Well, we can say to people, are, are you... is, is is your life situation so overwhelming to you that, that you want to end it and that, that people will say that and that then others are saying, well, you know, you are a burden. Doesn't that make you think that you probably it's being pressed on uh, the poor. Uh, And and we are very quickly, uh, she mentioned this earlier in the article that um, some of these experiments have already been run. We just don't like where they were run in Nazi Germany, which said, listen, I mean, this is the point of Mein Kampf, my struggle by Adolf Hitler. He and Himmler said, listen, nobody's, we know nobody's going to think we're good people uh, for suggesting that uh, 
Jews and gypsies and homosexuals are a drain on society and that they should be killed. We know no one will accept that, but that's our struggle. We, we know it's for the greater good, therefore we have to do it. We are there, again, where people are asking questions like, well, how are we going to help society? And doesn't, doesn't uh, our, quote, helping society mean some people are going to have to go? Uh, and, and Christians will not walk down that path. We don't claim to know better than God. If these people exist, it's, we didn't make them exist, and we don't get to make them not exist. Yeah. They, they exist uh, by the will of God, and according to what we see in Scripture and how God has, has revealed himself to the world, we know that each and every human being is endowed with what, what some have called sacredness. We would call uh, the Imago Dei, the image of God. Therefore, they have worth. They have mm-hmm. value. Uh, regardless of how small they are, regardless of how smart they are, regardless of their capabilities, every single human life has value. And the moment we begin to to deny that and, and do away with that and say, well, sometimes I do, sometimes I don't, then, yeah, we're gone. We're toast. Uh, we have reverted to paganism in that right. instance. Yeah, and I want to I point to uh, what seems to be at Peter Singer's background, which is this Nietzschean idea that uh, the morality of the strong is what we really want. Um, if anyone has met someone who has never struggled at all, uh, who has experienced success after success in their life, ask yourself if that person seemed to have compassion for those who were struggling. Uh, Ask yourself if that person seems to be some sort of paragon of virtue. Because Peter Singer's idea seems to be, best case scenario, little struggle as possible. We need need to remove the people who really struggle because that's a net negative on society. I don't think it is. And I think you can see that, that most of the people who have made contributions that are amazing uh, to society know what struggle is mm-hmm. and have yeah. compassion on others who are struggling that some sort of society where there is only the strong who help themselves oh that is that is not something that i want to be a part of it doesn't sound ideal to me i can see at a base level how someone might land there but it's not thought through that's not thought through that that is the ideal society. I, I choose songs. One of the people that I, I choose songs written by regularly is a woman named Fanny Crosby, who was blind, yet mm-hmm. writes, yet wrote song after song saying, I see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There, there is one who walks with me. And though I couldn't find him, he found me. Yeah. Um, and, and you're telling me that that person, we, we have to abort that child in favor of one? who wouldn't have a certain weakness, it's short-sighted. It, it, is, it is a refusal to see that there is more to life than just strength. And that's the point of this article. That is a pagan view of the world, yeah. which has not yet realized that there is value in weakness, that God will make something good, not in its bare self, but that God will make something good. He will do something good out of, out of our weaknesses. That, yes, there's frailty in being a human, and there is especially frailty, frailty in being a fallen human, but praise God, he does not leave us as we are. Mm-hmm. And that we'll be more, having gone through what we have gone through, that he will make more out of whatever struggling and suffering you have endured and whatever suffering you're enduring right now, mm-hmm. that there is good that God will make of that. Because we're also afraid that he won't. Right. And we feel alone in our suffering. But that is the promise of the gospel, that he sees you wherever you are, mm-hmm. that he will make good out of the suffering that you have endured. Uh, and and it's it's scary to go through suffering, yeah. but to think that there is hope through it is a wonderful thing. That's right, and there is, and there is. 
Well, she concludes, and, and as we've said, she's not a Christian writer. Um, but these last couple paragraphs in her her article, I thought, man, that is pretty profound. Yeah. Um, and so she, she writes about how Christianity is often imagined as water. She quotes Amos 5, 24, but let justice run down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, uh, repurposed that, that passage, and he said, uh, uh, but anyway, the point she's making is that uh, if water, if Christianity is water, then it is an unstoppable force. It'll run down, uh, seep up, no matter the, no matter what, right? Uh, but she says, but what if Christianity is not water? What if instead we understand the Christian era as a clearing of a forest? The forest is paganism, dark, wild, vigorous, and menacing, but also magical in its own way. For 2,000 years, Christians pushed the forest back with burning and hacking, but also with pruning and cultivating, creating a garden in the clearing with a view upward to heaven. But watch as roots outstretch themselves and new shoots spring up from the ground. The patch of the sky recedes. Paganism has not, has not needed to be reinvented, writes Stephen Smith. It never went away. In a certain sense, the Western world has arguably always remained more pagan than Christian. In some ways, Christianity has been more of a veneer than a substantial reality. And then she concludes, with no one left to tend the garden, the forest is reclaiming its ground. I think this is, there. it's so profound, and there's so much in there to kind of unpack. And we would, I would caution against overusing this sort of allegory that she's making. Sure. But I do think it is the case, uh, and, and I'm not talking about salvations here, though I think the more Christian influences seen, the more the gospel will uh, be able to be pointed to as right and true. But um, the idea that she's promoting here is that Christian values, Christian uh, morality um, is that which pushes back the darkness, pushes back the evil in the world. Uh, this is much like there was the the king, King uh, Uzziah, I believe. Um, and he was sort of, um, he was con- commended in the scriptures in the Old Testament for his, uh, essentially his fighting against evil in the world around him. Um, his pushing back against uh, against the enemies of God and the enemies of God's people and, and doing good. And he's sort of commended for that. I, I think of this in a similar way of the fact that as Christians, we ought to be for the good of society. And the good of society means promoting Christian values, promoting Christian ideas uh, from the top down um, because we are in a situation where we do not live in a world that has been converted from paganism to Christianity. Uh, we live in a world that we ought to promote the pushing back of those things, the evil yeah. of those things. We ought to prune. We ought to cut back and all the way point people to Christ, point right. people to the gospel uh, as the answer for their deepest need and as the one who will come in one day and truly cut down mm-hmm. uh, all evil, truly cut down those forests to where all that will remain is a reclaimed world, yeah. uh, one that has been freed from sin and filth and, and unrighteousness and one in which all that remains uh, is goodness, is rightness, and that found in the glory of God. Um, so, like, there's a lot of what she says there that it's pretty profound. Um, and as Christians, it is a part of our job um, to prune, to push back, to fight against the evil of the world for the sake of 
of um, the gospel, but also for the sake of what is right and for the sake of justice and for the sake of human flourishing. All those things are good and right. And as Christians, we can't just ignore those things and say, well, my only responsibility is to tell people the gospel. Yes, that is a part of our responsibility. Indeed, it is the main responsibility that we have as Christians, but we also ought to be for justice and opposed to injustice everywhere we see it. Right. Something that um, I hope to live by is uh, the idea of truth at any cost, that I want to get what's really going on. And uh, truth is a hard thing because it's going to cost you something. Uh, Sometimes to ask hard questions, you have to ask hard questions of yourself and, and the world around you. Um, but in, in thinking about kind of the standpoint of this article that it, that it basically says Western civilization has been, uh, without realizing it, a, a sort of pagan cult. And, and I think, okay, what kind of pagan cult? And I would say a, a cult of liberty, a cult of freedom. But her contention in this article is that uh, abortion is not freedom and that divorce is not freedom. Uh, that infanticide is not freedom. Uh, that euthanasia, killing people based upon your assessment of their value, is not freedom. And ultimately, that even strength is not freedom. Mm-hmm. That because we have been living sort of in inside this idea of freedom, we have not seen what it even is. It's lying to us in, in some ways. Um, and that like many pagans of the past, we, if we ask the hard questions, we might find a better way forward. And, and either we will or we won't. And this will happen in every individual life. Um, but I, I hope for truth at any cost. Uh, it's worth asking. And the truth is worth finding out. Uh, it's not going to be comfortable all the time. It will demand uh, something of you, um, but that we should go after it. And I appreciate, if nothing else, this is a bold, a bold questioner. Yeah. Uh, and, and she's on a path somewhere. You know, and uh, and what we can ask of all of us is that we 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 wake up every day and we go, okay, what is what's the truth? What ought I be, to be doing? And boldly ask those questions and and follow those answers wherever they might go. Get at the truth. Yep. And my hope, uh, you know, my prayer for uh, for Louise Perry is that um, she would see that the kind of things that she's promoting, the ideas that she's perpetuating, the goodness that she sees in Christianity, because she does, um, that it is true, uh, that the gospel is true, and that salvation, not just what is better for human society, but salvation itself comes only through Christ. Uh, and that would be the case. It's really sad that while this is a great article, it's really sad to me that that so much of what is true can be put forward uh, by someone who still at the same time rejects uh, the creator of the universe in this way. So, um, yeah. Right. And, and so what, what do we do about that? Well, look, um, while we run into all kinds of people who may not be interested in engaging in conversations. We are seeing people more and more every day who are completely empty from a world that has sold them fortune and fame and power and pleasure and left them on the side of the road. Yeah. Beat up, torn apart, confused. And what we have then is the water of life. And I do think that what's happening in the stage of the world that we live in is we all have been given technology that is seems to have the promise beyond what it could actually offer. And so we wake up and go, well, it didn't do anything like I or maybe my neighbor thought it would. 
Um, but that Christianity, like water, takes a little bit of time to seep into places. And then the other hard reality that we know is not everyone will turn and follow Christ. But what we who know him should do is serve and love our neighbor and do our part for the day. And that those who are thirsty will continue to come. Mm-hmm. And uh, we do not. Whatever tradition any of us come from, we cannot look back on an unfailing positive influence uh we're not dunking on catholics in this podcast right. just because of some yeah. history protestants have a history of getting entangled sure. in dark politics and colonialism and, and things that we would just go yes unfortunately we humans are malicious and deceptive and yeah. will use power in wrong ways but we believe in a jesus who is not like that and our hope is in him not in our traditions not in uh, not in ourselves in any way, but in in him. And until he returns, we strive to be faithful to him and do the ordinary things every day that he asks of us. And, and as we do that, I do think he's at work. Yeah, Amen. Well, that's exactly right. And um, yeah, this has been Empires of the Future, and we'll see you in the future.